You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast that features interviews with thriller, mystery, and suspense authors. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash M-T-T-A. That's an M as in murder. Over 180,000 titles, including great thrillers to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So stay tuned for the next episode of Meet the Thriller Author. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. Please join me in welcoming John Ellsworth, a trial lawyer with over 40 years of trial experience who now writes page-turning, best-selling legal thrillers. Uh, excited to uh, talk to John about his uh, work. Uh, thank you for being on the podcast, John. Hi, Alan. Thanks for having me today. You bet. Very excited to have you on the uh, podcast. And I usually get things started by asking guests for a little background information about themselves. Uh, so can you get us uh, started with that? Yeah, well, you just said I had 40 years of trial experience, which means I started at the age of five, so I'm about 45 <laughs> years old now. A child prodigy. A <laughs> child prodigy, Right. Anyway, I live in California. I write legal thrillers. That's my genre because I practiced law for a long time, and that's all I know how to write. Uh, my characters are basically two in number. Uh, Thaddeus Murphy, who started out when he was in his early 20s, mid-20s, and he's now probably mid-30s, still trying cases and going strong. That's about an 11-book set so far. And then the more recent series that spun off from that is Michael Gresham. That's a four-book set. And Michael is probably in his mid-50s, has been around the block a few times, and really knows quite a bit about how to get along in courtrooms and so on. So it's not all a mystery to him. And so far, that's my best-selling, uh, my best-selling series. When you started to write these, uh, I, I understand with a legal background, but uh, the whole thriller, uh, mystery, suspense genre, were you a fan of that uh, as a reader before you started writing these? Yeah, I was. I, I would read anything John Grisham wrote back then, and I, and I still would, basically. And then, of course, Scott Turow read him, read everything he's written. Uh, those guys really paved the way for the rest of us. I will say that uh, in regards to people like that, my books tend to have more trial scenes, courtroom scenes in them. And uh, that's probably a result of my having spent so much time in courtrooms. I was a trial lawyer. And basically, I get a lot more, I think, of the thrill out of the courtroom scenes sometimes than I see in other stuff. And so that's kind of where I've made my niche, I think. My readers seem to like that. Yeah, I read your, uh, I read, I've read a couple of your uh, uh, Thetis Murphy uh, books. And uh, yeah, it is exciting. You even inside the courtroom, you make it uh, you make it exciting to to read. Uh, is that something like I, with all the legalese? Is that something that was a challenge for you, or is still a challenge to like write a thriller that's you know legal but not uh, over our heads for us uh, non legal people? <laughs> you know, that's a really good question, Alan. And it's a trial lawyer's job to reduce all the legal mumbo jumbo down to something that uh, you know normal people can understand and i don't i don't say sub average intelligence people but just people who aren't trained in the artifice of the law and so i think having done that for a lot of years it has translated well for me into writing legal thrillers because i still try to write on that level you know i could, i could object that for example some hearsay evidence may be in a will 
would be objectionable because it was not a testamentary capacity of the person who made the will at the time. And if I said something like that on the page, I would totally lose my reader. Whereas on the other hand, if I say it's hearsay, you know, and just leave it at that, people have seen enough TV that they know what the heck is going on, and that's not a mystery. So part of my job, yeah, is to make, to make the, uh, the really hard things to understand, to try to make them understandable. And a lot of the time I'm doing research myself. There's so much of this stuff that probably I'm learning right along with the reader. <laughs> and I hope, I hope everybody's surprised by that, but maybe they're not. And how long have you been uh, writing fiction? I have been writing fiction since I was probably nine years old. I wrote all through my years practicing law. I was an English major back in college, plus I had a, a second major in accounting, so I had a double major. But I've written, I wrote a lot in college, I wrote a lot of books while I was practicing law, a lot of legal thrillers, and couldn't get them published anywhere, you know, I, and I had agents too that peddled them around New York City for me. But uh, nobody was interested, and so finally when I found Joe Conrath and those people online, I was just getting ready to go down the road of a vanity press, as I remember, and getting ready to pay someone two or three thousand dollars to publish my book when I first found Joe's website. And I started reading about self-publishing on Joe Conrad's site, and I read that all over a three-day weekend. And I went, wait a minute here. So then I published on Kindle Direct Publishing, uh, self-publishing. And since then, I've had a number of agents contact me now, and they want to be my agents. I've had offers made from regular traditional publishers in New York and so on that want to publish my books, but I've avoided all that and been pretty pretty happy with it. You know, I'm a I'm a firm believer in getting 70% of my sales versus the 15 or 20% that a traditional publisher might offer. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And I, I I read when I was doing research for this on you <laughs> that. Uh, You've had over a million downloads of your books? Yeah. That's amazing. In less than three years. Wow. I I got really lucky, Alan. I'll tell you what. Uh, I don't know how or why, but when I started out, I was about four months into it, and I got my first book bub. And I went, holy cow, how'd this happen? And probably two months after that, I got another one. So in, I think, the first 14 or 15 months, I had like 11 or 12 book bubs. And most of them were freebies, so I was giving away anywhere from thirty to 50,000 books, which is included in that number of downloads. And uh, it just seemed like all of a sudden I had a vast readership, a whole big readership. And, of course, the key to that is, and I'll say this to anybody who's interested in self-publishing, is that the number one rule for me is to write something that people want to read. I've, you know, I could have a lot of readers or potential readers out there, but if it's not stuff they want to read, I'm not going to get very far with it. So, you know, that's that's my first thing is to write something that I like to read. Uh, if somebody else had written it, I'd say, "Oh man, this is great! I can't put it down." That's what I aim for. And with the uh, the the legal background, that was sort of like a merger of of writing in something that you want to read, but then using the expertise that you already have in the legal field? Was that uh, something, was that like a, a conscious uh, choice that you made, or is that kind of just like you just started writing your, your the, in the in the genre and came out as a legal thriller? You know, probably the latter, that I just started writing in the genre. I've, I've read a lot of detective fiction, you know. I love Michael Connelly. I love Sue Grafton. There's just a lot of people I really like to read. David Archer. And I... 
I've read a lot of it, but it seems like everybody has to have sort of a twist in their fiction. Uh, maybe the the main character is in a wheelchair, or maybe it's a woman, or maybe it's black woman, or maybe it's a transvestite. I don't know. Something that's got a hook to it. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And if they can do that, then they have a character that people will consider unique and maybe interesting because that character will be limited in that respect uh, by which they're defined. Somehow they'll be limited. And so that makes it more of an uphill battle. That makes it more challenging. And so the reader can get more into it. But I never really had that facility to come up with characters like that who were in a way different and have that contribute to the story. It's been done so much that I really don't know how to do it in any and really differentiate myself. Anymore, I see books come out and it's advertised, you know, ex-CIA, ex-Mossad, ex-FBI, ex-Special Forces. And I'm like, yeah, but I've read that book before. So I'm lucky, really lucky, in that I can go into my legal background and come up with stuff that not everybody can write. And so it's not a real crowded field. And yet it does take a certain amount of expertise in law to to write that stuff, I think, if you're going to do justice to it. So I haven't had to create real, real unique characters. I mean, I've tried to in and of themselves, but I haven't had to go out of the way and give them characteristics that people are going to find appealing in and of itself, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, that is that's an incredible. I I don't think I mean, I don't think it could be really done that somebody doesn't have the legal background in law, at least, could write a legal thriller or, or a medical thriller if you're not really a doctor. But, uh, yeah, that's a great a, a great asset to have on your <laughs> on your side. Yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned uh, with uh, uh, John Grisham, so now I have to ask, so is Michael Grisham, is that a homage to, uh, to John Grisham? Uh, not really. Uh, there was a movie, I don't know if you remember, I can't think of the guy's name who was in it, but it was called Michael Clayton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, what, what's his name, Clooney? Uh, George, George Clooney, yep. Yeah. And that movie really, really impressed me. I thought my, I thought George Clooney did a great job as Michael Clayton. I thought he was dealing with a kind of suspenseful plot that lawyers can get caught up in. And I thought the way you would see him dealing with the guy who on the way home ran over somebody in a crosswalk and he had been drinking and Michael Clayton comes in as the fixer and this is what you do. That's really pretty true to life. There is a lot of that stuff that went on, at least in my life, because I did a lot of criminal law. And so I took the name Michael from that, all right? And as far as the Gresham, I just did a search on ordinary last names. I think I asked for English at first and looked at those because I'm English. And I found Gresham, and, and I said, okay, that'll that'll be it then. It really wasn't in terms of playing on John Gresham's name or anything. I, I didn't have that in mind. No. Oh, so that's kind of cool. You use the same like, the same uh, tools like I do, f- trying to find character names like uh, exactly. go by the ancestry or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so now, do you find like uh, any of your real life cases ever find their way into your stories, or do you can't go there because of legal stuff? Or I think amalgams am- amalgams find their way in. I. I'll find uh, something in my mind, something will come to my mind, a a line of cross-examination on a police officer, for example. I heard a real old lawyer do this one day, says, would you state your name for the record? 
And the cop looked up and he says, Trooper Lawrence. And the man laughs and he says, ho, ho, Trooper, did your mom name you Trooper? And, you know, you remember dumb stuff like that. And so maybe it'll come up later on. And sometimes you remember some really smooth, cool stuff that maybe even you did. Uh, there's also a set of books out there called Proof of Facts that I use every now and then that teaches lawyers how to prove certain facts that takes them to the question and answer rigmarole. So for people who are wondering, you know, sometimes how to get to some of this stuff, that would, that's a pretty good resource, too. And do you do a lot of research of, for, your, for your books uh, before you start writing? Not before I start writing, but as I'm writing. I'm not a plotter, by the way. I, uh, I really write. I'm a, I'm a pantser. I write by the seat of my pants. I know Libby Hawker wouldn't like hearing that, <laughs> but she'll give me a pass. I'm friends with Libby. But, uh, yeah, I, I write uh, maybe two or three chapters, and then I'll get off on something that requires some research, and I'll spend maybe 30 minutes online researching it. And I'm pretty fast, I guess, like everybody is anymore, you know, using Google and, and Wikipedia and some of that stuff. So that's kind of how I research. Now, I'm getting ready, or I'm in the process of writing a book right now that takes place in partly Berlin and partly in Russia, and I'm seriously thinking of going to those places, of course, you know, to get the feel for it, uh, how people look, how they dress, and so on and so forth, so that the verisimilitude is somewhat uh, connected up in it. Yeah, there's nothing like writing um, on places that you've been to, that you know, uh, it's quite, it really helps with the... Uh with with the world yeah exactly yeah. are your books set in the in in the so are your books set in locations that you're very familiar with that you've lived in before yeah a lot of thaddeus is set in flagstaff arizona i practiced up there for 10 years and a lot of thaddeus is set in southern illinois where i practiced for about seven or eight years but mostly most of my book uh, books other than that are set in Chicago where I spent the great majority of my time practicing law both in the state and federal courts and so that's my best familiarity I guess you could say so so when you start writing you get an idea for something is that uh, something like uh, on the news will that trigger it for you to, like, when you start brainstorming uh, what you're gonna write next yeah sometimes that'll do it I I really will hear a narrative voice first and it'll say something that I like that might be catchy or might be off the wall or might be very telling about the character. And I'll put that down as a first sentence. And then just go from there and see where it goes. It's mainly just coming out in a, in a gush, you know. It's not like I'm sitting there going, okay, now what would happen? Now what would happen? But most of my books will start with a courtroom scene. And that sort of lends itself to this ability I have to just write courtroom scenes. And so before I know it, it's gone to a certain place. And that kind of dictates then where the next chapter comes from, doesn't it? You know, once you're done with that. And so I, I just listen for the voice, really, that, that the character is going to have and that the story is going to be told in. And are there any similarities between you and uh, Thaddeus or uh, Michael Grisham? You know, Thaddeus is such a superman, I would have to say no. <laughs> I was a pretty common, ordinary lawyer, to tell you the truth, Alan. Uh, and Thaddeus is quite a, you know, quite sophisticated in the things he can do. Uh, as far as Michael Gresham, I would say there's more of a connection there. Uh, for one thing, the age is not that different between us. But Michael Gresham is the sort of guy who's been around the block. He's been burned a few times. And, you know, he still has this need to see justice done in his cases. And I still had that need when I finally hung up my law books and quit practicing law. It's something that you either have as a lawyer or, or you don't, I think. And 
while he still has that need, he is also moving into a part of his life where less and less does he want to be in that, you know, that realm every day. And I, I went through that too, where you begin to think, you know, I'm tired of fighting with people. I'm really tired of this. And I started looking for something else to do at that point and remembered I could probably put a book together and publish instead. And uh, where do you usually write? Do you uh, have like a dedicated office or do you go to like a coffee shop? Or? Yeah, I live in San Diego. Uh, out behind my house, there's another little house. Well, it's a converted garage actually with a couple more rooms attached to it. And that's where I write. That's where I'm set up. I have a an exercise bike in there. I have this walking treadmill desk. And, uh, yeah, I sit there and just sit in an easy chair and balance my laptop on my lap and write usually for an hour, maybe two hours a morning, and then I'm done for the day. I don't write a, a long time, but I write pretty fast. And as I go, I should also say I edit as I go. So usually after my first draft, I'm done with a book. It'll go out to editing then. And uh, my, my editor, Cheryl Hopton, Hopton, will come back and say, change these things here, change these things here, the continuity's bad here, so make this connect up. I'll do those things, which will take me a few more hours, and then basically I'm done with the book at that point. Wow, that's pretty amazing that you can uh, edit that way. But I guess with your, with your legal training, you probably have, done, uh, have experience with writing uh, legal briefs and all that stuff. Is that, did that, do you find that helpful when you start? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think so. But I, you know, I taught English for a couple of years, too, and wrote a lot of poetry and I'm really into the metrics of how of how literature sounds you know I'm gonna start off maybe my first sentence and this is this is probably getting too esoteric maybe but my first sentence might be a simple sentence my next sentence might be a complex sentence and then I'm gonna come back to maybe something with a conjunction in it and then maybe a quite long sentence then back to a couple of simple sentences again I like to get the meter down like people talk and like what they think when they're abstract thinking, you know, that'll kind of get into some more complex and carry on sentences versus when they're speaking, that'll go back to simple sentences. So I'm really into how, how my stuff sounds. And when I'm editing as I'm writing, that's what I'm looking for is how the meter of it is going. And uh, do you uh, do you write like on, uh, with Word or do you use a, one of those a software like Scrivener or? I use Scrivener. I, I guess a lot of people do anymore. I love Scrivener. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to try to do the same thing with Word, but it just didn't lend itself to dragging stuff around like Scrivener does. And so I, quite often I'll write my first chapter on a novel, and when I'm done, it'll no longer be my first chapter. I'll write a prologue at that point, you know, and with Scrivener it's cool because you can just stick it in there mm -hmm. and then probably maybe write an epilogue or another ending or something too and just jam it in there. But I'll also get scenes out of place, you know, and write something that I'm more excited about, and it comes later in the book, and so I can move stuff around. I love Scrivener for that. And how long does it take you to, uh, from the time you, you get the idea and you sit down and start writing, how long does it take you to finish the, finish a book and have it published? Uh, seven weeks. Wow, that's amazing. I'm jealous. <laughs> oh, no. No, I just, uh, that's just the way I, well, you consider, you know, writing a thousand, two thousand words a day in 60 days, 70 days, 
uh, you've got your book done. So maybe maybe eight weeks would be closer to it. But there are times when I'm getting near the end where I'll start writing 5,000 words a day. And so that kind of telescopes it on that end on the last week. Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it, too, of uh, a thousand words. I interviewed uh, Jake Needham, and he said he sees it as a writing, what did he say, a thousand words a hundred times versus a hundred, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, kind of bring it down to, to bite size. And uh, so what, what do you think for, you're so successful, what, what do you think, what does writing success requires? What do you think that requires for somebody, an inspiring writer that might be listening to this uh, podcast? Write something that people want to read. That's the, that's the best advice I can give. If they want to read it, they'll tell their friends about it. And if they tell their friends about it, suddenly you've got the geometric progression going. You know, they'll tell four more friends, they'll tell 16, they'll tell, you know, and so that, and that's, that's really a simplification and I'm not trying to be dodgy, but I read a lot of stuff that's like, it's, it's interesting and it's passable, but then I compare it to somebody like maybe Sheldon Siegel, whose stuff I love, or maybe Michael Connolly, whose stuff I love. And when you start reading those guys, you know, you're in the presence of a real writer and you feel safe with them and you like reading what they've written. And so that's what I try to do is make people feel safe. I'm not going to pull stuff on them. And I'm also not going to try to use misdirection and stuff like that. If there's a clue they need, they're going to get it from me. And it's going to come up later on in the book. But it's not going to be so hidden that they would have read over it and missed it. And so you've got to be honest. You've got to be fair with your readers that way. And I think all of that lends to my initial point, which is to write something that people want to read. They feel safe with it. Uh, They feel interested in it. If you can get into things that they typically don't know much about, such as how to repair an air conditioner and make that part of your story, you've you know then you've tickled their fancy too, and that always helps. And do you have a lot of interaction with your readers? Are you active like on Facebook and social media and stuff like that? Not really, not really. I have a virtual assistant who does most of that. I I don't know. People write to me quite a bit, and I respond to all of the emails myself, or at least try to. But as far as social media, no, I don't do much of that at all. Do you still find time yourself to read uh, with your schedule and everything? Like thrillers? Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading The Other Side of Goodbye by Michael Connolly right now. Uh, I just finished reading uh, the story of of Gary Powers during the Cold War when he got shot down over Russia and the U-2. Yeah, Yeah, the U-2 pilot, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just... I just read all that stuff all the time, you know, and it gives me ideas for stories and, you know, nonfiction is a great place to find story ideas and to find chapter ideas and things like that. But, uh, so yeah, I'm reading all the time and I don't try to limit what I read when I'm writing because the two are really separate things for me. And what are some of the challenges? Do you ever have challenges when you're writing a story that, you know, it might not be flowing and how do you overcome that? Yeah, I definitely do. Probably always I get into maybe halfway in a book or two-thirds of the way in a book, and I sit there and I go, my God, who would want to read this? This is really boring. And, you know, so what I'll do is take it to my wife, who doesn't mind being bored by me, I guess, (laughs) and let her read it. And she'll come back usually and say, this is really interesting. I don't want to put this down. I want to read this. And so then that kind of gives me the impetus to go ahead and finish but left to my own devices, my brain will play tricks with me at that point and go, you know, this is pretty common. And I, I look back on stuff. I've got a book out right now, uh, Carlos the Ant, 
which is very popular. It has over 50 reviews, and I think only three of them are four stars. The rest are five stars. And these aren't people off my own mailing list or stuff like that. They're really organic reviews. And people are, are speaking very highly of the book while I was writing it. And when I'd finished it, I didn't know how well it was going to do. I had no idea. And I'm looking at it now going, what is it about this book that they like so much more than my other books that might have a 4.3 overall star rating? Why does this one have a 4.9 and get all these kind of, I wouldn't say raves, but get all these higher, high dollar value reviews, you know? And and uh, it's real hard for me to put my finger on. I don't know what it is sometimes. And so, you know, success is not something that I can, maybe it's repeatable, but I'm not sure I'm the guy to do it. Yeah, that's amazing because you've had, you've had some success and all your books have, are, do seem to be doing very well uh but yeah you still yeah. doubt yourself right it doesn't it, it doesn't seem to get easier as you, even with with your success and, and you know publishing several books a year yeah i uh i i doubt myself to some extent but i i also read other writers you know and i it's kind of like after you've done enough of that you begin to have certain expectations for yourself at writing at a certain level and you know if you're doing that, that it's going to be well well enough received by your readership. The main thing anymore, you know, the way Amazon makes you grind out books by its 30-day and 90-day cliff, uh, the main thing is to keep writing and just keep writing and keep putting out books. I've never said, you know, for example, that I'm writing the great American novel and don't ever expect to, and God knows I don't have the tools to, but I do have the ability to write every day and to put out books, books frequently and that's what the Amazon machine requires. So for somebody that's maybe thinking of getting into this, you know, my first caution would be uh, the first book is something you put aside and start the second book immediately thereafter. Because the first book is not going to make you rich and famous, and neither is the second. And the third is what's really going to start selling your books. And maybe by the time you've written your fifth, sixth, and seventh, you'll start making some money. So you've got to kind of have a willingness going into it to, to have in mind that this is about more than just writing one book. This is about really committing uh, and writing several books before I'm going to see much success back. Yeah, that's a great long-term uh, uh, view to have. It, uh, I think that's excellent advice versus you know, thinking that it's going to, you're going to hit a home run right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't happen that way. Yeah, and how many books do you have out uh, so far? Uh, I've got about 17. Yeah, and I've been writing 33 months now since I published my first book. So about a book every couple of months, I guess, something like that. And now you're, you're doing this full-time now, right? You're not, a, you're not practicing law anymore? No, I've been doing this full-time since I started writing. Well, I had to wind down my law practice that first year, so I wasn't taking new cases, and I was finishing up old cases. But it was no problem. I mean, like I say, I only write an hour or two a day anyway, so... Yeah. Finishing up a law practice, there was nothing much to that. But uh, I've been I've been pretty lucky. I think my first month publishing, I sold maybe ten books or twelve books, something like that. And after my third month, I became more or less self-supporting. Uh, the books caught on pretty fast. But remember, this was back in January of fourteen, and the competition back then was nothing like what it is today. Mm-hmm. And so it was much easier to get visibility and much easier to sell lots of books quickly, I think, than it is today. Today, I don't know how people get started in it. I, I don't know what the, what the right tools are to tell them. 
And I think that's a lot of the tubas with your covers. You have very distinctive covers that really, I remember seeing them a, a couple of years ago. They started bouncing off and they were very catchy. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, those awesome covers. I think those are a large, in large part why I've gotten so many book bubs. And uh, my artist, by the way, if I can put in a plug, his name is Nathan Wampler, W-A-M-P-L-E-R. And if you want, I'll send you a connect up to his website where people can get a hold of him if they if they have a feel for those covers too. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be fantastic. Uh, always looking for good, great the designers and talented people like that. <laughs> yeah. I love Nathan. He does this full time, you know, in the advertising industry, and does stuff like for me, you know, the freelance stuff on Fridays and weekends. I think mm-hmm. so. He's just he really works well with me. I think his covers are like $500 a cover, which maybe is high, maybe is low, I don't know. But they sell so many books for me that I don't think that way anymore. They're just, yeah. they, <laughs> it costs what it costs, and it's worth every penny. Yeah, but I do think that's a great, uh, for you know, newer per- persons who are aspiring to write, who are listening to this, uh, I think that's a, a, a wise investment in, in your cover because it's so important. Especially like, especially like you said, nowadays, the competition is even more ruthless <laughs> than it was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. There are some great covers being done by indies now, aren't there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, amazing. And you start seeing now that the um, traditional publishers are starting to kind of copy what the indies covers were doing. I start seeing like the same like fonts and styles. I'm like, huh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they really are. Yeah. Although some of their covers on the best-selling books, I I don't know why they're best-selling based on those covers, but who am I to say? Yeah, well, yeah, if they had the big push, the the big their big machine behind them, then I guess it doesn't really yeah. matter. But very few authors get that treatment anyway. So <laughs> not us guys. No. Yeah, yeah, no, not 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 down here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I'm working on what is probably going to be my third series. It, it is going to be about the CIA, about Russian spies, about cyber warfare, and about an attorney in the U.S. Justice Department who somehow gets involved in all of this. And it's going to be set in D.C. Don't hold me to any of this. I might blow off the whole idea tomorrow, by the way. <laughs> but I think it's going to be set in D.C., and so I'll have to go back there. I haven't been there in years, uh, not to look around anyway. I need to get some face time with some of the buildings back there you know, and look around and get updated. But uh, I love stuff like that, like Vince Flynn's books, you know. Mm -hmm. They're based in that area. They've got all this background going on and stuff like that. And I love writing that way. So I'm going to try something a little bit different and try to expand the scope of my my genre just a little bit here. Yeah, that that sounds awesome, actually. I love those type of books as well, and I like to write those also. But uh, adding the legal twist to a you know top spy type that type of thriller is sounds fascinating i think that's well, you yeah. know that's that's the thing for me alan is is like i said earlier and i wasn't putting this down you'll find you'll find your main characters who are ex-cia ex-massad ex-fbi and so on my people are lawyers usually and that's unique in that lawyers are often in such a position that they get to see stuff like that uh, otherwise, yeah, you do have to be FBI or ex-FBI or Mossad or, ex-F- or ex-Mossad. Although I will say, you know, and I say this, this is for your new readers or for your new writers. The thrilling thing about writing is, and the thrilling thing for readers is, is to take an ordinary person and put them in extraordinary circumstances. You know, 
if you ever go, have a chance to go back and read Marathon Man, mm. that is who that guy is, is a guy who's a very ordinary, common person, but he has this one skill, which is that he runs, you know, and so that's going to become a part of the story. He's got a very strange brother who's an assassin, you know, and he's a world-class killer and all that sort of thing. But the guy uh, who basically is the main character in the story is just a nobody, just like the rest of us. And here's this wonderful thing happening to him. Here's the key, I think. Readers aren't ex-FBI, ex-Mossad, and ex-CIA. They're like us. They're just ordinary common people, or at least like me. And so I'm going to relate to that main character that's a common, ordinary person that has something extraordinary happen to him. And I'm going to relate and put myself in his or her shoes and say, geez, how would I react in that situation? And I won't be looking at reacting as an ex-FBI agent. I'll be re looking at reacting as just plain old John, you know, and say, could, could I do that too? Would that work for me? You know, so I have a lot more... Uh, connection with a story when that's going on. Yeah, that's a great point. And that was a great book, by the way, too, The Marathon Man. Can't, I, can't remember, yeah. I can't remember the author's name, but that was a great book and, and movie, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw the movie first, and then just a couple of years ago, I went back and read the book, and I was just like blown away. It's fantastic. I love that book. Yeah. Okay, well, John, I'm not going to take uh, very much more of your time here. Uh, before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to do, uh, tell our, our listeners? No, really. Uh, I'm with a group of 13 thriller writers right now that we've just put out a book called The Thriller 13 that I'd like to put a plug for. It's got D.B. Berkham in it. It's got me. It's got David Archer in it. It's got Mark Dawson. It's got L.T. Flynn, some people like that. And uh, all the proceeds are going to a charity. We're not getting any money out of it. And uh, I think it's going to hit some bestseller lists when this book bub comes out. So if people are looking for thrillers that they'd really like to take a look at, I, the Thriller 13 is the name of it. And it's a really, really fun read. I'm reading everybody else right now. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That's some lineup, and and it all goes to a great cause. So that's even, wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll, uh, for the listeners, when you, when you listen to this, I'll uh, have a link on the website. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but if you go if they go to Google and type in uh, "thrilling thirteen uh, to Amazon, it'll pop. I'm sure it'll probably pop right up too, right? Yeah, thriller thirteen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, great. Thanks a lot, John, for your time. I appreciate it, and it was nice talking to you. Thank you, Alan. I really much appreciate the opportunity. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I'd like to ask you to please review and rate this uh, podcast over on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out. If you take a few seconds of your time to uh, do that, it would be much appreciated. You can also visit my website at thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for show notes on this episode, as well as information about the uh, podcast in general. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. You'll be getting uh, special offers from our guests, as well as information, uh, behind the scenes information on the podcast. And uh, please do visit my author website at alanpeterson.com. I appreciate your support. And so until next episode, I will talk to you then.